Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Now, live and direct from the press box at Old Comiskey Park, it's time for When Football Was Football. Let's join your host, Joe Ziemba, with another forgotten tale from Chicago's pro football history. Let's go! I believe when football was football emerged nearly two years ago here on the Sports History Network. As such, the program that you are about to hear is the 50th edition in our efforts to share some unusual stories about the early days of pro football in Chicago. Twice each month, we enter the dusty football archives in search of a forgotten hero or simply to present another side of a familiar historical person or event. Although it was totally unexpected, we were very honored recently when this podcast was named as one of the eight global finalists in the category of Team Podcast in the competition presented by the Sports Podcast Awards. So we thank Arnie Chapman, the founder of the Sports History Network, for his encouragement and support of this program, as well as for being the director and producer of these segments. Thank you, Arnie, for this program and it would not exist without your enthusiasm and commitment. But back to football, old time football. Our episode this week uncovers a very unusual story that resulted in a player's disappearance, the threat of an ensuing lawsuit, and some bitter feelings in the burgeoning rivalry between the National Football League and the Canadian Football League, which was then known as the Interprovincial Rugby Football Union. The year was 1953, and the Chicago Cardinals were excited about the potential of the team's quick new halfback from Syracuse named Avata Stone. The Cardinals drafted Stone in the ninth round and expected him to compete with local legends such as Charlie Trippi and Billy Cross for playing time, especially with the retirement of Elmer Engsman and the loss of Ollie Matson to military service in 1953. Stone was also a gifted punter, rated one of the best in collegiate circles. At Syracuse, Stone initially became noted for his all-around abilities going back to his freshman season in 1949. In the coverage of a 51-0 romp over Buffalo freshmen, the Syracuse Post-Standard commented, Avidus Stony Stone, a quarterback, scintillated and connected on six of seven passes in addition to scoring a touchdown. Then on the varsity level, beginning in 1950, Stone was a standout defensive back and a punter for the Orange. In a 27-7 win over Penn State, Stone intercepted three passes and returned one theft back 85 yards for a touchdown. But then due to team injuries, Stone moved over to quarterback in the latter part of the 1951 season and led Syracuse to a 5-4 record, its best mark since 1942. 
On November 17, 1951, Stone's running pace Syracuse to a 9-0 victory over longtime rival Colgate as Stone rambled for a 56-yard score for the only touchdown of the contest. A week later, Stone tossed a 33-yard scoring pass to end Joe Zambathi and added another score and run himself as Boston University fell 26-19. The Chicago Tribune named Stone to its all-player, all-American first defensive team after the season. So his football future was looking up for Stone as Syracuse concluded its spring practice schedule on May 3, 1952, with an inter-squad game at Archibald Stadium. Stone was the starting quarterback for the Orange team. Unfortunately, his day ended prematurely when he suffered a broken left arm during the first half of action. His coach, Ben Schwartzwalder, said, It seems like every time you turn around, one of our signal callers is getting a broken bone. But on the bright side, Stone was expected to recover quickly and assume the starting quarterback position in the fall especially after jumping in and pacing the team to its rare winning season in 1951. Optimism reigned when Syracuse opened its preseason camp in August of 1952, with Stone expected to prevail in a three-quarterback race for the starting position, according to the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, which said, Pat Stark and Bruce Yancey lend tremendous support to quarterback Avada Stone, the East best punter last season, a reliable safety man, and good defender. While Stone could do it all, but Coach Schwartzwalder decided to utilize the impressive speed of Stone and moved him back to halfback prior to the start of the season. Then Avada Stone endured another devastating injury in one of the last preseason practices when he suffered torn ligaments to his left knee and immediately underwent surgery. The prognosis was not good. Stone would be lost to Syracuse for the entire 1952 season. Nonetheless, Syracuse enjoyed a fine year, finishing 7-2 during the regular season and being ranked 14th in the country. When Navy turned down an offer to play Alabama in the Orange Bowl, Syracuse accepted the invitation to replace Navy. But there was a bit of shameful controversy involved in this scenario. Although Stone had recovered sufficiently from his knee injury to play in the Orange Bowl, the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle reported that he would not play in the order to ensure that he retained a full year of eligibility. Sadly and unfortunately, Stone's injury may have paved the way for Syracuse to accept the Orange Bowl bid due to a horrible mandate required by the opposing University of Alabama. The Press and Sun Bulletin clearly explained the ugly situation. It said, Syracuse apparently would not be playing in the Orange Bowl had not its brilliant safety man, Avata Stone, suffered preseason injuries that shelved him for the year. According to Dan Parker's column in the New York Mirror, Alabama accepted a Miami bid with the stipulation that its opponent have no Negroes on the roster. We're surprised that the Orange Bowl officials would be part of such discrimination. Now that Miami has given Alabama a foe with the type of pedigree the Crimson Clan demands, all Dade County in Florida is afraid it'll be murder, that Syracuse won't belong on the same field with Bama. 
Well, with its only black player in the sidelines, Syracuse gleefully accepted the Orange Bowl bid and then promptly was slaughtered 61-6 by Alabama. Just three weeks after the murder of Syracuse in the Orange Bowl, the Chicago Cardinals selected Avada Stone in the ninth round of the 1953 NFL Draft. Stone still retained one more year of collegiate eligibility due to the year loss with his knee surgery, and he reported for spring practice at Syracuse with high hopes. Coach Schwarzwalder said that Stone would be, quote, the most sensational player in the East next fall, unquote. The coach plan now use Stone as a receiver along with utilizing his defensive and punting responsibilities. It should be noted that in addition to his being drafted by the Chicago Cardinals, Stone was also a superb baseball player, being courted by both the Pittsburgh Pirates and the St. Louis Browns as a catcher. There was also some interest from football teams in the Canadian pro ranks. And this is where things became complicated for both the Cardinals and Nevada Stone. On July 7, 1953, Stone decided to give up his final year of collegiate eligibility and signed a contract with the Cardinals. Walter Wolfner, managing director of the Cardinals, later recalled how this process evolved by stating that Stone had called him to ask about his status with the Cardinals and he was told that he could not be signed until Stone's senior class at Syracuse graduated. At this point, Stone confirmed that he would not return to Syracuse for his final year of competition. Negotiations began, Wolfner sent Stone a plane ticket to the Windy City, and Stone eventually signed a contract with the Cardinals, which included a $200 bonus. He was also provided with a ticket for his return to Chicago later in the summer for training camp, as well as another $500 advance on his salary. Stone reported to the Cardinals training camp at Lake Forest College and was shown in a syndicated news photo on August 1st, 1953, preparing to practice with the Cardinals. Coach Joe Steidehar called him one of the greatest prospects he had ever seen. For the next two weeks, Stone worked out with the team until suddenly disappearing from camp on or about Saturday, August 15, 1953. No one knew where Stone was, and he had recently dispelled rumors that he was considering leaving the club by telling Steidehar that he was entirely happy in the Cardinal camp and gave his word of honor that he would remain with the team, and that was reported by the Lubbock Morning Avalanche. But lo and behold, Stone was found two years later in the lineup of the Ottawa Rough Riders in Canada on August 17th. Of course, when word of the sighting of Mr. Stone in Canada reached Chicago, the management of the Cardinals was not very pleased. In particular, Walter Wolfner was angry, irate, and looking for retribution immediately. Wolfner knew that Stone was under contract with the Cardinals and vowed to fight this case through and the cost doesn't matter. Wolfner added, A player has the full right and privilege to go where he pleases. When we draft a player, it only means that he is going to play football in the National Football League. He must play it with us. He can ask to be sold or traded, but he can't join another team without our consent. We fulfill our end of the contract and we expect the player to live up to the terms of the contract once he is signed. 
While the Ottawa Journal in Canada was pleased with the arrival of the gifted football player, it too had some questions about the shadowy movement of Stone, saying, Stone signed with the Chicago Cardinals. He had been with them in training camp until now. There is no explanation as to how he comes to be with Ottawa, but he was not cut from the Cardinals, which may prove interesting. Wolfner claimed that he possessed proof that Ottawa sent Stone's mother $2,000 to help entice him to head north, and Wolfner renewed his vow to initiate litigation against the Rough Riders. All of this seemed to amuse Ottawa President James P. McCaffrey, who responded, The Ottawa Football Club holds prior contract rights to the services of Avata Stone and is prepared to accept any service of any writ the Chicago Cardinals may issue against it. We dickered with Stone way back last spring. He was to report to our training camp, but went to the Cardinal camp in Chicago instead. We are quite within our rights in keeping him and will be glad to have the matter thrashed out in the courts. Apparently, all of the threats and posturing between the two clubs never materialized in a lawsuit, and Stone remained with the Rough Riders and enjoyed a fruitful season in 1953, finishing among the league leaders in rushing, scoring, pass interceptions, punting, and kickoff returns. He played in the Canadian League through 1957, was twice named to the All-Star team, and in 1955, received the Jeff Russell Memorial Trophy as the most outstanding player in the Eastern Division. Stone did return to the United States and appeared in one game with the Baltimore Colts in 1958 before knee issues prompted his retirement from football. The great disappearance of Avada Stone gradually disappeared and faded from view, but remains one of the intriguing stories in the history of the Cardinals. Thank you for joining us for this episode of When Football Was Football, and we hope that you can be with us next time when we discuss two brothers who helped the early NFL to survive, even if no one knew their names. Thank you. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup. Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast is a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squires, a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on a Sports History Network, as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.